Hi, I'm Hashem Montasser. Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations. Our guest today is the founder of a company I personally think can make a serious impact for the startup space here. Patrick Rogers' latest venture, Clara, attempts to solve entrepreneurship pain points through a hybrid model combining software platform with human expertise. As someone who advises startups a lot, Patrick also shared a lot of insights about things entrepreneurs should watch out for and a few key mistakes we see in the region. But let's begin in 2008 when Patrick moved to Dubai just as the global financial crisis was hitting its peak. I ended up in Dubai kind of by accident. Um, my now wife and I were living in Toronto in 2008 and we both wanted to uh, spend some time abroad. We'd both done so individually earlier in our lives and we wanted to do a kind of a foreign adventure and we'd earmarked London as the spot that we wanted to be. I'd, I'd then taken a few interviews in London in June 2008 only to arrive in London then and be told the same thing in each of those meetings which was, so sorry, we brought you over here. There is no job. We think the world's going to hell but our offices in the Middle East are still going extremely strong. Would you like to get on another plane, go down to Dubai and, and check it out? So I did, and I got down here, hadn't, hadn't been to Dubai before, and uh, you know, kind of the rest is history, as they say. By 2015, Patrick kept getting approached by early stage startups with questions about venture capital financing, in short called VC, founder agreements, and the like, which is where the starting point for the idea of his company, Clara, began. The rules of my law firm were such that I was not allowed to take these startups on as clients. And that was less so the case now, but certainly the case then, that the big firms that know how to do this kind of work wouldn't take the startups. They only wanted to take the VCs on as clients. And none of the regional firms knew how to do this type of work because it hadn't been done here before. The classic case is, is Kareem. When the guys were going around the DIFC to find lawyers in 2012 to help them negotiate their first financing, no one would take them on as a client they had to go to California to find their first law firm. You know, and, and this is a prevailing mindset even still amongst big firms is that it's impossible to make money on startups. So you can make money from the investors because you know they have money, but for the broke would-be first-time founders, it's a very dangerous client to take on because they're very needy and they don't have any money. There's this idea today that entrepreneurship is about the Eureka moment or that it's just as simple as having an idea and launching a company. That's not the average experience, and it certainly isn't what happened with Patrick. For him, quitting his job led to an exploratory process to develop the idea. I had a great experience at my last firm, Jones Day. They're very good to me, um, but I was not interested in being on the partnership track and doing right. kind of one job until I was 50. That thought terrified me, frankly. Um, so I decided to kind of jump off the ledge. I had a pretty good idea that I would be able to generate income in the short term by essentially being a sole practitioner. Right. Um, so doing legal advice, but on my own terms, um, mostly for early stage companies. And then that kind of snowballed into SMEs and larger corporates. Um, a, a relatively short time thereafter, um, my co-founder, Lee McMahon, kind of quit his job. He was more on the in-house side. So he was a general counsel of a FTSE 250 company. And um, we both started kind of building together what became a law firm called... Can Supporting I interrupt you Please, for a second? Yeah. How did you find a co-founder? Because it's something also you want to talk about a little bit. Like, yeah. And um, is he a co-founder in your company? Correct, Clara? yes. He's one, yes. he's one of the Clara co-founders, yeah. How um, many co-founders do you have, first of all? We have five in Clara. Five. And I'll get to so that. So how does this work? Because I think, again, for people that are in the startup business, they, I mean, it's a lonely business. How did you find your co-founders? And were there criteria or just found each other? Like, 
walk us through that. Um, in the case of Lee and myself, we were friends. So we met very early on, um, both been lawyers. I, I worked with his wife at DLA Piper, Rachel. And um, once he kind of saw that there was, there was likely some momentum behind the idea, um, you know, he quite quickly uh, quit his job as well. And, and we started building that together. And then we, we announced the launch of Support Legal, I think, in March 2017. We grew that for two-plus years. Okay. So now it still exists. We've brought For startups. No. No. Anybody. Full stop. Full stop. Yeah. Anybody. Yeah. So Clara is a spin-out of that law firm. Okay. And we've taken the startup piece with us. But Support Legal continues to attract top, top-tier lawyer talent. Okay. Um, and is now focused more at, um, at the SME corporate government level. Right. So doing more traditional work, but in a very untraditional way. Okay. So companies like ourselves, I just want to explain, yep. the Lighthouse, we go to support legal and yep. we book a number of hours and yep. we ask them to do legal stuff for us. Correct. So um, the, the difference, and that's the way you would kind of approach your standard law firm, the difference is being we will in the first instance, if it's, if it's replicable work, let's, let's say you guys were franchising, Correct. right? Um, okay, instead of just putting together your franchise documentation, how could, we, how could we automate a lot of that documentation out of the gate? So we'll build your precedence and then we'll bring in our legal technology team to automate those documents. Okay. So for each future iteration, you're answering an online questionnaire that then produces the docs in about a tenth of the time it typically takes. So not looking to make money, as much money as we can, per transaction, looking to kind of help standardize and streamline your approach as a client. And how did the pivot happen? So what happened? So last summer, we had a general catch-up amongst, uh, you know, me and my, my partners on the support legal side, and we kind of did a look back at everything that we'd, we'd accomplished, say, in the last two years or so, and where the trajectory was going, and just trying to distill some key lessons learned. And when we were looking at the, the startup work that we did, mostly around venture capital fundraising, one thing that became eminently obvious was that so much of what clients, startup clients were paying for was information or advice that was highly repetitive in nature from our side. Right. Right? So education around basic concepts. What is a preferred share? Why is the investor insisting I put a share incentive plan in place? What's a drag or tag along? Right? Education, basic documentation restructurings because they incorporated incorrectly. A lot of this stuff that we just saw ourselves repeating over and over and over again, whether the company was in Nigeria, right. Singapore, or all places in between. And I would say it even extends to engagements that we'd had in the Western world, so in the US or the UK. Founders, from our perspective, were making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And a lot of it came back to the fact that they view legal as an admin task, so they wait until the last possible moment to deal with it, and they're scared of lawyers because, in their view, they're going to be super expensive, they're not commercially minded, all of this stuff. And it's important to remember that just because you have an idea does not always mean it will be successful. Every startup needs to evolve during its lifetime. I, I just had a gut instinct that there was something there. I'm, I'm a hustler. I would make it work. I'd be able to keep providing for my family, right? That's baseline. Um, what we're doing now with Clara... Uh, is clearly a problem. I mean, in the last month, I've been in, I've been in New York, I've been in London, I've been in Singapore. I think it's a problem. Yeah. Talking with people who understand, sure. you know, the startup law space, at you know, like few others do, and the response is, you guys are absolutely solving a problem. Um, it has not been attempted to have been solved before in the way that we are trying to do it. 
they find it very interesting and it's going to come down to execution like most things do. Yeah. But it's my firm belief that we have, we've, we've um, properly identified the problem. We have the team and technical expertise to solve it and that it is really going to come down to execution. You said mistakes. Interesting. So, What are the common mistakes you've seen? Um, Founders. To, I, mean, yeah. I don't know think we have that much time. <laughs> no, but you know, uh, the, the typical, you know, if yes. I'm starting a company today, what is typically... I'll give you three. Yeah, right? please, I'll give you three. Um, potentially a bit more uh, specific to the region, but still, I mean, with, with global applicability. So yeah, domicile. So where you incorporate your company. So And guys, what's the mistake there? Just explain. So if you're trying to, we're only interested in, in companies that are venture backed or need to raise venture capital in order to have a business. If you're opening a new shawarma stand, that's great, but you're not a venture backed or backable company. We're not, we're not interested, yeah. right? We're, we're looking at tech companies that need to raise venture finance because that is the hook because they have to get help on the legal okay. side, right? Um, so common mistakes, yeah, where you incorporate. So the company that, you know, we've had tons of these examples, great tech company incorporates in Saudi Arabia because the founders are all Saudi. And then it comes, it come, they raise a bit of seed cash from you know, friends or family or individuals. And then it comes time to raise from a sophisticated VC. No sophisticated VC will buy shares of a Saudi company because it's a civil law jurisdiction. Mm. You can't do things in a digital fashion. You have to appear before the notary to get anything done. You have to have every single shareholder agree to every terms in order to bring on investment. It's totally unworkable and very inflexible. Just on that point, what would be your, your go-to preferred domicile? It's a very simple playbook now for the region. Okay. Um, and startups are now a lot more, and founders we'll are a lot more that, attuned yeah, to this than they were even 18 sure. months ago. But you have to put a common law jurisdiction holding company on top, typically in a tax-neutral jurisdiction. For the region, Abu Dhabi Global Market, or ADGM, is now kind of becoming the, the regional home of VC. So if you want to structure your startup, for purposes of raising venture capital. You're seeing a lot of that move through ADGM. You're also seeing Cayman, BVI, and to a lesser extent, Delaware in the UK. So I'm going to push back a little bit on that. Um, most people would go to Cayman. Why would I go to Abu Dhabi? Let's use my example. So if you're a group of Saudi founders, right, and um, you know you have to put a common law holding company on top of your operating company in Saudi Arabia, if you go to Cayman, you're going to spend an extra $15,000 to $20,000, wait an extra three months because you'll need SAGI approval even though it's the same Saudi founders, right? Because ADGM is recognized as a GCC jurisdiction. So they don't require SAGI approval, even though it's the exact same shareholders. That's not the case with Cayman or BVI. All right. So here's one mistake. Give us a few more. Selling down way too much of your cap table too early on. So the classic one in the region. Speaking of the cap table, let's be sorry. Sure. Um, so a capitalization table is a list of your shareholders, listing the number of shares each hold with, cor with a corresponding percentage. Okay. Rule of thumb... Uh, typically is that in any financing round, a startup should not sell more than sell down more than 20 to 25% of their cap table. So, so if you, if you have a startup today in, in Dubai and we're three years old and we're doing well yep. and we are maybe not profitable typically, typically. but on our way to growth, yes, a lot of growth, what should a founder expect to have in terms of percentage of his company in, in your view? Well, have they raised money? If they have raised, let's just say they went through a, first round mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, a seed round or a venture round, yep. so venture, venture back round. Yep. What would you recommend to, to, to founders? So three years in, typically what you would see 
at what we prefer to see in the first instance is that the founders themselves seed the company okay. with some money, right? To show that they have skin in the game. Okay. Everyone has money, right? If you don't, you just quit your job too early or a really <laughs> bad saver. So don't quit your job. And this would be one of my, if you ask me so my advice about company? people contemplating, of course. Because I did, I did mine, but I, I want to hear about you. Yeah, of course we you did. You did, okay. Because, right? I mean, why would, I mean, the classic is people who are trying to raise money who still have a job and don't seed their company but they're trying to go to outside investors and say, look, I've got this great idea. Give me some money. And I believe in it so much that I still have my job and I'm not going to put any of my own money in. But basically, I want you to guarantee my so salary. So you see your company, you started the company, you did a venture-backed first round, series A, whatever yeah. they call it, in venture capital. Yeah. So let's say, let's say you seed your own company. Yeah. Six months after that, you probably raised a bit of money. If you're still going three years later, probably at the two-year mark, if you're going well, you might have raised a series A. Probably by that point in time, you've diluted your, your founding position sure. or your, your, your founding uh, team's position by, say, 35 to 40%, right? So you as the founding team might only own 60% at that point in time. But your valuation would have gone up significantly, let's hope. Um, so your shares, the 60% of the shares that you collectively hold, will be, more th will be worth more uh, as an aggregate than the 100% of the shares that you held three years previously. So key mistake in the region, number two, selling down too much of your cap table too early. It's a poison pill for future uh, institutional investors. Why the way you manage your cap table can be such a poison pill and how Patrick manages work-life balance after the break. Hi guys, this is Hashim and I wanted to share a little bit about The Lighthouse from where we bring you this new podcast. The Lighthouse is a restaurant, gifting store and activation space all rolled into one. And our aim is to bring together creatives from around the region to share a meal, a cup of coffee, or simply hang out. From time to time, we'll be sharing some information about what we have going on. A little nugget about the food, our gifting items, or an event we are hosting. So if you're ever in the design district, do swing by and say hi. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE. Welcome back. I'm Hashim and you're listening to The Lighthouse Conversations with our guest, Patrick Rogers. Before the break, Patrick shared why it's a key mistake to dilute too much of your startup's capitalization table during funding, and why it can be a deterrent for future investors. In the view of future investors, the, typically the investors that have already given you money are useless to them because they're not mind and management. They're not full-time members of the team. They were useful at one point in time to give you cash, they might be providing some, some ongoing support, introductions, that kind of thing. To your next investor, the historical investors are, broadly speaking, useless. So they want you, as the guys operating the company, to have as much skin in the game as possible. And if they can, you know, classic we see in the region, the second time you go to raise money, you show your cap table to potential future investors, and they say, why did you sell 51% of your company for... $500,000 to a guy who's now calling himself the chairman of the company who is not from a venture capital firm, right? Instantly, you're not getting money. <laughs> so, and we see this happens all the time, right? Because of the regional mindset uh, is still, you know, broadly speaking, stuck in the traditional economic mindset of owning real estate, brick and mortar businesses. So we are selling down too much too early, Correct. in your view. Yeah. Well, that's but not my also view. Also, isn't part of the problem that it's very hard to value these companies? So... Of course it is. Yeah. You know, so so how, am I, how am I to look at Clara and say it's worth one, two, three dirhams? I mean, uh, how would I think about that? So you can, you can split capital raising into two buckets, right? What we call a priced round. So if you were our investor, 
you would buy shares from me at a set price per share. And then on that day, you go on to the capitalization table. So your name appears there. That's what we call a priced round. The second way to do it, which kind of deals with your point, is by raising money via a convertible instrument. And without going into too much of the detail, it's basically a contract that says that you give me some money today, and that investment that you've made will, at a future date, convert into shares. And that future date will be the date upon which a, a larger financing round is raised and the terms are agreed with a lead investor. The thinking being at a very early stage, it is difficult to price these businesses. So the businesses need some time to realize traction before their economics can become more clear and evaluation discerned. But even going, just going back to the price round, so yeah. I mean, you are deciding evaluation. How are you deciding on that? The, the, the metrics um, typically emanate from the U.S. position. So whatever that is right now, if it's 10x revenue for an e-com company or whatever it is, you can look at the publicly traded um, comparables and then do a discounting against that for the private market. But ultimately what it comes down to is supply and demand and how you're able as a founder to drive that scarcity in the minds of the investors, right? So in a way you decide, you're going in, you're testing out investors, you're saying it's worth X. Yep. You have some kind of composition around why the X makes sense. Yep. And then you're testing out the market. You're hoping for the Correct. best. Is that Correct. what it is? Correct. And I think what, what we've seen historically is that as long as the, the startup, this is for a price round, as long as the startups are generally in line with kind of international metrics, then the, the, the VCs will give them kind of a pass. And then it's really looking at the important stuff like total addressable market, who the team is, whether, you know, they're, uh, whether they've been an entrepreneur before, uh, and their go-to-market strategy. So how are you looking at your own company, Clara? So is this a, a Dubai story? Is it a global story? It's a global story. As I said, this is something, the, the, the pain points that we've spotted are, are, global. are global in nature. And ultimately, if you want to get to the nub of the issue, it comes back to the fact that lawyers are just too damn expensive. And they've had too long in sitting in their protected industry to fend off but you are lawyers, the, right? the headwinds of, of technological innovation, right? I am a lawyer. And like with most things, I think it takes, you know, the insiders to, to do the, the true disruption. There's lots of techies out there who think they can foil the plans of these law firms by coming up with this innovative solution. But at the end of the day, you know, um, ordering legal services is a lot different than ordering a hamburger on, on Taliban, Right. Um, you're specifically for a founder of a tech startup, um, the lawyer that you're hiring and the decisions that they're helping you make are going to be some of the most important decisions that you make in your entire life. So like, like a good doctor performing a surgery, there's a certain amount of bedside manner and comfort that founders get from having that expert human lawyer sitting alongside. From our vantage point, yes, that's going to remain for a long time, but a lot of that stuff that that lawyer is currently charging for can be done by software. And that's where we're trying to get to. We spoke earlier about the fact that entrepreneurship is not a walk in the park. And not only does Patrick have four co-founders, he also got two young boys. So I was curious, how does he keep it all together? Look, a lot of people like the idea of entrepreneurship, but they put a very rosy tint on what it looks like when when the rubber hits the road, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, you, you have unlimited upside earning potential. You can wear trainers to work. If you want to show up at 11 o'clock, it's no problem. Um, on the flip side, forget about proper vacations, right? Forget about going Time to, for yourself. Forget about going to watch football on Saturday with the guys, 
right? Forget about your <laughs> the girls, six o'clock tennis lesson, right? Um, it's it's you get into proper trade off scenarios. So it's twenty four hours. It's not that it's not twenty four hours, right? And this is part. This is if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur. This is part of what you you have but to. Are you ingrain. available twenty four hours? No, if I call you, no, no. I, I, I'm not picking up my phone at three in the morning. <laughs> okay. I turn That's it off. No, no. I'm I'm curious to know. Like, yeah, are, no, I, are you, I I don't I don't put it on I don't put it on mute. I actually turn my phone off. To be you do very clear to people that wouldn't like, that I'm piss not, off me? Not if checking. I was your co-founder, I'd be like, you know, Patrick is not picking up his phone. If you don't have boundaries, you okay. won't be in business right. very long. It's good to know your mental health. Will so you have that. And then yeah. you, you have kids and you have a wife and you have a life and you have things and how do you manage all that? You travel and you have to raise money. And yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the bedrock of this, as, as, with, as with my co-founders, um, uh, is, you know, incredibly supportive families. Okay. Um, uh, so, you know, we can't, <laughs> couldn't do it without them. Basically, yeah. you know, they're, in, a, in a way, they're all co-founders with us, right? Because right. they, they have to be bought in to what all of this sacrifice may add up to. So you have two boys, right? Yeah. So what do you tell them about what you do? I mean, you show up in trainers every morning and you leave the... <laughs> you know, you used to be a lawyer, you right? Used so you used to wear a suit. Sometimes I still do. And yeah, yeah, and you don't anymore as much. Yeah. So you wake up in the morning and you leave and your older son sees you leaving and, and you tell him what? Like, I'm just... No, my, my, my... I mean, if you want to get into the granular, my day is, <laughs> my day is quite different. So okay. I, I, get up, I get up quite early and I do work before everyone else is up. Okay. I kind of do my thinking stuff. Okay, right now. And then I try to take him to school as much as I can okay. during the week. I'm not, I don't need to be what at my desk at What do you tell him that you're doing? Um, if you ask him, because he actually had to present yeah. this a couple of weeks ago at school, he says that uh, uh, daddy helps people solve their problems. Okay. Is that what you told him? Is that what he thinks? That's, so I, I've tried to explain. You know, it, it's tough when you're talking about what lawyers sure. do and everything, right? But um, I talked to him about the, the baseline concept of an agreement, right? So if, if he has agreed that if he cleans up his room and does these other things that we might get to watch that movie on Saturday, yeah. that's an agreement, that's right? Fair. You teach him what an agreement is and that I help other people achieve <laughs> agreements and help them hopefully get along a bit better. I like that. So you're negotiating with your own son in certain ways. He's going <laughs> to learn sooner or later. Might as well learn from me. I personally think Clara is a company to watch for, and you all should do it too. And if you're a startup or someone that wants to start a conversation with them, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. All our episodes are available for free in your favorite podcast player, and you can connect with us on Instagram, at the lighthouse underscore AE. We'll be back in the new year on January 15. So until then, happy holidays. <laughs>